Some people think that the plastics from our environment, from our floors, from our phones, from our clothes are more contributing to the plastics we consume than the food we eat. They believe that there's more plastics falling onto your food while you're eating it than actually the plastic that is in the food yourself. Hello and welcome back to the Plastic The Last Straw podcast, the series where we're exploring the problem with plastics as we hear from the experts in the field, as well as the individuals and organisations trying to make a difference. Along the way, we will be highlighting the unique challenges, innovations and opportunities surrounding plastic pollution. Plastic The Last Straw is produced by TuneFM at the University of New England in partnership with the Environmental Protection Authority of New South Wales. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on Anna One land and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In this episode, we're turning the magnifying glass towards ourselves as we hear from experts at the University of New England and the University of Western Australia about the impact of plastic on human health. In episode two, we learned about the pervasiveness of plastic in the environment, but what if plastic is accumulating in our bodies the same way it has been accumulating in nature? In recent years, a study found that about 77% of its subjects had microplastics present in their lungs and even in their blood. A different study from 2020 uncovered microplastics in the human placenta for the first time. These plastic particles are believed to have been inhaled or consumed by the mothers and were described by the research team as presenting a colourful array of blue, red, orange and pink dyed plastics. It's clear that plastic is now endemic to Earth and that our exposure to it can begin before we have even physically entered the environment, with babies being born pre-polluted by foreign materials. Despite this, we still don't understand very much about what this level of plastic exposure is doing to us, or even what safe levels of exposure might be. Researchers do, however, agree that there is potential for plastic and plastic-associated chemicals present in the human body to trigger immune responses and inflammation. We recently spoke to Dr Michaela Lucas, a clinical professor from the University of Western Australia, about the paper titled The Evidence is Mounting, for which she was the lead author, as well as her ongoing clinical trial. I'm Michaela Lucas. I'm a clinical professor at the University of Western Australia. I'm also a physician, a clinical immunologist and immunopathologist uh, in Perth, Western Australia. I got interested in how plastics affect our human health. And I'm starting a trial on this. But the first thing I did was really look at the literature. I was particularly intrigued that a lot of the plasticizers or plastic associated chemicals are actually endocrine disrupting hormones and they're very lipophilic. So from the very start, I thought they may induce inflammation of the fat tissue, which is linked to metabolic diseases such as obesity, polycystic ovarian syndrome, type 2 diabetes. So we started to write the review, which I'm the senior author, on this aspect, looking at the role of these endocrine disrupting plasticizers called phthalates and bisphenols in the majority of cases in cardiometabolic disease and in inflammation. And this is why we wrote this review, which was published in the current opinion of endocrinology. With the review, we really wanted to see how much evidence was there in the literature currently to indicate that there truly was a link to support my theory that these endocrine disrupting substances would enrich in fat tissue and what would be the effect. So we did look at this review and we found some evidence, hence it's called the evidence is mounting, 
There was some really good published data on association studies, studies that show that, yes, if you've got increased excretion of these substances in your urine, which is a common measurement uh, of your exposure, that this is linked to obesity. For example, on the most simple form, the more you would excrete, indicating you would consume more, the higher your BMI was. There's also other studies which look at the biology of these substances, looking how they may actually influence this metabolic inflammation that I've been talking about, or this is inflammation in our body that drives metabolic diseases. And there's also some pathophysiology and some biological processes described. That was reassuring for me. However, I thought, okay, you know, it's good to know or to, to, uh, to know that these plasticizers are probably a danger to human health. But I wanted to take it, give it a lot more of a positive spin. I thought, okay, if this is our problem that we're having, plastics are endemic, what are we going to do about it? Can we fix it? And this is how I then approached my research where I thought, okay, can I design a study that will show that purifying the body of these endocrine disrupting molecules, which all of us excrete, does have a health benefit. And this then led to the clinical trial, which is a randomized control trial that I've just started last week in PERS. It's called the PERS trial, Plastic Exposure Reduction Transforms Health. And it is a trial to really ask a simple question. Yes, we all know we excrete, we're consuming plasticizers, we're consuming nanoplastics, uh, microplastics, but is it bad for us? And if it is bad for us, can we cure people of it? Is plastic exposure the new smoking? And if you stop smoking, will you get a health benefit? If you stop eating plastics, will you get a health benefit? And this was the idea behind it. So we we discussed that it was actually a, a study that was discussed with the Plastics and Human Health team at Mindaroo and the Mindaroo Foundation. And they said, okay, we're going to fund a study of that scale. We're going to fund a randomized controlled trial that will allow for people to live without plastics, to see a health benefit and to measure that. And this is exactly what we're setting up now. When I started the trial, I realized that there were many, many gaps. So I had my review. I knew there was some, there was some evidence that it would influence cardiovascular disease and metabolic diseases, but I realized there were just gaps. I wanted to know how much plastic exposure do people get in Australia? You know, what are the levels? Are there variations? Is this linked to the way you eat? Is this linked to the way you behave? Is this linked to where you live? It does it link to your socioeconomic status. All of these questions were open questions. So in the first instance, I decided to run a cohort study to really understand how much plastics is in us, what type of plastics are in us now, because we all were worried about bisphenol A. And then now on a lot of products, you say it's BPA free, but instead it does have bisphenol S and F. And then you ask yourself, well, this is just a way around it. It sounds great to be BPA free, but what about bisphenol S and F? We don't know anything about these. Are they equally bad? And probably, you know, they may, but we don't know. So I wanted to ask all those questions. And that's what I'm doing right now with the first cohort study before we then move into the randomized control trial. Dr. Lucas also explained to us what inflammation is and why it can pose a problem to human health. Inflammation is a chronic activation of our immune system, and it's mainly an activation of our early immune system, our innate immune system, as it's called. The innate immune system, when I teach it to my students, I compare it to the ambulance that comes to the scene of an accident. 
it really is there in our immune system to alert our immune system that there's something happening that's not quite right. So imagine you have an accident and with the accident, you know, there is a little fire and people are injured and you now have a warning sign that goes off like an alarm bell in your body and your innate immune system will be the first help us to rush to that scene. They then produce an environment that is very rich in activating molecules. And these activating molecules then alert other arms of the immune system to come to be more targeted to treat it. So a little bit like your specialist that you would then see in the emergency department. As you know, there's a lot of smoke, you know, there's accident, there's excitement, there is stress levels are high. It's a very intense environment. For some people that inflammation happens all the time, these molecules are released all the time, not to the same level that, you know, you constantly want to run away, not your whole flight response which is your response to an early injury, it's activated all the time at a lower level, but it puts your body under chronic stress. And if you are under chronic stress and these molecules in your body are chronically elevated, it will in a way tire your body out. It uses things in a different way. It makes you immune suppressed because it borrows from other arms of the immune system to keep that inflammation going. Think about it a little bit like you've got an infected tooth in your mouth and you're just not quite well. You know, you can still eat, you can still do your things, but you've got a little bit of pain and you've got a little bit of inflammation and these bacteria growing there all the time. And your immune system is constantly fighting it. So you're a little bit more tired. You're not quite right. And it's a little bit like that, what happens in our fat tissue when you've got metabolic inflammation. The regulation of the fat tissue isn't just quite right. And you've got these molecules seeping into your body all the time. And overall, they influence other mechanisms, the way you metabolize glucose, the way your heart beats, the way you metabolize your lipids. So it actually influences all of it. The underlying principles of inflammation independ what disease you're talking about from, you know, rheumatoid arthritis to cardiometabolic disease. The underlying principles of this early inflammation are exactly the same in the body. Inflammation is inflammation, but you've got this low grade of immune activation all the time. And that can't be good for you. That's not good for your body. It's not good for your bacteria living in your body. It's not good for your mind. And it's not good for the way your body works. And this is what metabolic inflammation really causes, except in metabolic inflammation, it influences metabolic processes. One of the initial challenges faced by Dr. Lucas and the team behind the trial was finding a way to effectively monitor and control the amount of plastic participants would be exposed to. So exposure to plastic and plasticizers in our environment is everywhere. It is very, very difficult. And I know now because I'm trying to design a trial exactly around that to live without plastics. People have this idea, okay, I'm just going to put my rice now and store it in a glass bottle, or I'm not going to drink out of a plastic bottle. I'm just going to use a glass bottle. That's great. And it will reduce to some extent your plastic exposure. But what about the plastic lid that that glass bottle has? What about some of the treatment that the glass receives? What about the microplastics in your rice? What about the microplastics in your water? How do you actually wash something off something that may be contaminated as well? What about the environment you live in and the clothes you wear? So most of our clothes will contain plastics. You go to the gym, you think you're doing something healthy, but you're wearing all plastic in an all plastic environment. 
some people think that the plastics from our environment, from our floors, from our phones, from our clothes are more contributing to the plastics we consume than the food we eat. They believe that there's more plastics falling onto your food while you're eating it than actually the plastic that is in the food yourself. Very, very difficult, for example, to find plastic-free alcohol. Extremely difficult. If you want to control plastics in the food, you have to control the whole food chain. So you have to control the milk being milked by hand into a metal bucket filled into a glass bottle covered with aluminum foil. The extremes you have to go through are very difficult. We have to understand with our food industry that the plastics we use in the food industry have made our food a lot safer. It's preventing it from perishing. If you don't cover your chicken breast in plastic cling wrap very soon, it will turn gray. The exposure to plastics is really endemic. For a normal person, you cannot avoid it. There has to be major changes to avoid it. And for the trial, we discussed it for a very long time if we actually would even attempt to run a plastic reduction trial in people's houses, in their own houses, or if we would virtually have to fly them somewhere where there is no plastic. With such a complex subject matter and a need for extremely clear and specific findings, the clinical trial had to be considered from every angle before it could begin, and a team of experts with a wide variety of specialisations had to be assembled. To achieve real change, you need to have high-level evidence and What I really wanted to bring to the field coming from, you know, an immunology field and actually being an immunologist working in other areas of immunology, I wanted to give it some depth. I really wanted to design a trial that is very transparent in its design. So we're planning to publish the protocol of the trial. I wanted to give it its best possible goal because it's really expensive to run these trials. And it's very important that we do get a clear answer. Are plastics bad for us or are they not? And can we fix it? In policy change, it's often really driven by what's published in the literature and what people contribute to the literature. And there's different levels of evidence that you will be aware of. So there is a level of evidence where you just have case reports, you know, people tried this and it worked in that single case and that's really great. And if you then have 10 of those cases, it's sort of like a little bit more believable that this is really something that works. And then you've got association studies like the ones that are in our review saying, okay, in people that have higher excretion or higher levels of plasticizers in their body, it will lead to a certain, you know, obesity or a higher BMI. But what you really need to do is you really need to have randomized control trials where you take out that placebo effect or the bias that the researchers might have going into the study. So higher level of evidence are these randomized control trials where people are blinded ideally in the final stage of what they're actually achieving. So they'll be randomized in a group. They've asked to adopt a certain behavior. They may not necessarily know if they're in a low plastic exposure group or if they're just in a normal diet group and then to study the health effects. With all of those studies, that would be if you have a successful study and you show an effect that gives a lot of confidence to policymakers. And then ideally, you've got lots of those studies, and then you can do a meta-analysis of all of them and still show that effect. And that is the highest level of evidence. But the first trial is a unique one, being the first one of that kind. There have been studies of a lot smaller cohort, a lot, a lot smaller, shorter interventions. 
to some extent, what they've shown is that you can decrease plastics and uh, plasticizers in your diet, but they haven't really linked it to a health effect. Showing that there is a clear health benefit, you know, which would implicate that there is a detrimental health effect and that you can fix it is what can change policy. And giving uh, politicians a way out, right? You, that's why I designed it the way I did. You, it would be easy to design a trial where you just feed people plasticizers. You know, I personally think that'd be probably unethical, but you could do that and just show it has a negative health effect. But what then, right? What do we learn from that? As a doctor, you want to fix people. So I wanted to take it a step further and actually take it to the level where I wanted to give a solution at the same time. And really evoke this idea is that, yes, our environment, the plastic exposure is so visual, but do think about the endemic plastic exposure to your body that starts at birth and will continue through all your life. And, you know, do we enrich these plastics in our fat tissue just like we enrich plastics in our oceans? And what do we need to do to clear it up? So in a way, it follows what's happening around us, that we realize that plastic reduction is a way of reducing the plastic exposure to our environment. In the same way, I think that plastic reduction in our bodies is a better way to health. But at this current stage, I don't know if that's the case. And if it's not the case, if plastics aren't bad for us, that our body just copes with them, they're quite inert, they're just sitting there with us, maybe that's a good result as well. because. It will also teach us a lot about we just have to focus on the environment. Maybe the impact on our health is not the same extent as it drives destruction of our environment. The trial has a really large trial team behind it. It's run at the University of Western Australia, which are very supportive. As I mentioned, the fund is already funded by the Mindoroo Foundation. The trial itself happens at a building on UWA campus called the Harry Perkins Institute. And we are recruiting people that are in the age group from 18 to 60. This is like our purse adult cohort study to start off with. And in the first instance, as I said before, we will measure their plastic exposure. So in detail, what that means is you can take up plastics in your body by multiple ways, right? You can inhale them, you can ingest them, you can absorb them through your skin. So we are measuring how much you excrete. That's classically done by urine measurements. We can measure them in your stool. That's often done for the microplastics because although there's microplastics potentially in your blood, we think that microplastics generally can't be absorbed, but obviously microplastics break down into nanoplastics that may get into your body, but nobody has a really good method of measuring nanoplastics in tissue and people are working on that. So we're storing samples for future use to measure nanoplastics as well. Then we try to understand how much you inhale by looking at how uh, doing some nasal washings, which have been described. We're trying to measure the plastics in the people's environments, but a big key of the initial study is very detailed dietary assessments and lifestyle assessments. So we developed intense questionnaires and we're working with a mathematically modeling to trying to understand how these behaviors in these questionnaires relate to the plastics levels that you excrete. So ideally, what we wanted to develop, rather than having to measure the urine plastic excretion in everyone, we want to maybe have a questionnaire where you get a numerical value which tells you what your plastic score is. 
So that's something we're developing, you know, so almost on an app, you could say, well, this is what I've eaten today, or this is my behavior. This is how the products I'm using for my body. What's my plastic score? And then we can tell you how that may relate. So that's one aspect. So really understanding a lot of lifestyle of people, understanding diet extremely well, understanding your personal care products. A lot of it is absorbed through the skin. So we had a consortium of experts to develop these questionnaires uh, using a Delphi process. So you have got lots of this, which is sort of a, a standardized way of developing the best questions. We then also taking blood samples and measuring the inflammation status in the blood. We're also doing a very detailed clinical examination because we want to understand the cardiometabolic status of these patients. So just think there's some normal blood tests, which are just, you know, your cholesterol and lipids and so on. But there's also a lot more detailed analysis of it. Detailed analysis of the blood where we look at the inflammation and inflammatory cells in the blood. And we actually having some really beautiful technology where you can look in detail at the level of these molecules that cause inflammation in the body in a very sensitive way. So that's the setup. And that also has determined the team I've chosen. Amelia Harry, who is the senior dietitian on the team, she is having another team of more junior dietitians working with her really assessing diet with validated methods. And these are 24-hour dietary assessments which have been modified to look at plastic exposure. They will also administer the plastic exposure questionnaire and talk to them. Then I've got a team of nurses, of which I've got three nurses. Uh, I've got a team of junior doctors who are examining patients in great detail, doing their ECGs and so on. And then I've got a team of scientists which look at the blood samples. And then we have the team of physicists that are measuring the phthalates and bisphenols and all their metabolites. There's multiple phthalates, there's multiple bisphenols in their generic form. And then you've got like over 20 metabolites that you excrete. So we're measuring all of those. And that's a collaboration with the University of Queensland, which are really world leading in this and a local um, center in Perth called the CHEM Center. People often ask me when you design a diet, why don't you just measure all the foods that you're going to give to people? But each matrix of a food needs a different mass spec. So these are measured by mass spectrometry. So every food has a different matrix. Every matrix needs to be adjusted for. So it's not easy. You can't just measure like hundreds of foods. It's a lot easier to measure what comes out and then see if you see a reduction of what comes out in the urine. So hence, we're measuring it in urine. I do have really an amazing team. And the trick with all of these trials is trying to think of everything correct for everything. And I think the ones obviously that I haven't mentioned yet is that it's also supported by a team of statisticians and mathematical modelers, which you really need to translate data into numbers that then allow you to develop such scores. It's very ambitious, but we're trying to look at every single angle because of course, changing your diet has lots of health impacts. And we wanted to be absolutely sure that we make sure that the diet that people get is calorically equivalent to how they normally live. We didn't, you know, it's very, if you have somebody who's got a normal lifestyle and suddenly you go, oh yeah, well, you have a plastic free diet, just eat spinach for a week <laughs> and drink this bottled water, you know, like, I mean, they will have some changes in their body occurring. So it was very important for us to try to replace the diet as closely as possible. To do that, we're also working with a really excellent delivery service that's local here to Perth. 
which deliver organic foods and they will be there for the participants to deliver food this trial which because of the plastic free has to be almost every day so you know you can see how changing plastics in your diet is not an easy task you know it won't work of just going shopping once a week when we see just how much goes into research like this it becomes clear why innovators researchers and experts both need and deserve funding and support to achieve societal change it's the whole society has to change and you do need to have governments that support those ideas you do need to have funding for innovation to occur and different sources to be tested and developed you need to if you want a behavioral change you really need to educate everybody in the society so that really includes teaching of our children all the way to teaching everybody in society but it has to be the government does always play a key role in this because there is an innate trust of people in Australia for example for that if the government say it's bad for you it can't be that bad so i think having policies that indicate that the government you know takes a stand on these issues issues is really important and then in Australia I mean they've done this very successfully with their anti-smoking campaigns we should be smart enough to identify the very harmful substances and i think we have to be mindful of testing new substances that replace those substances as well so i think just not having that harmful substances and then just replacing it with something where we don't have any idea how it's actually working is not the way to go i think ideally you want to test all the substances and then pick the one that is the least harmful and there is of course a lot of work done trying to whether uh, you know produce new sources new materials that may be able to replace plastic but yes we have to be we have to make sure that once we sort of charge off in this direction that we don't repeat the same mistakes we've done before where we've just blindly producing things and not thinking about the health effects on us so ideally we want to be there as scientists and doctors along the way of making sure that these alternatives are actually safer alternatives and they're truly safer alternatives not just have a different name. We also spoke to Dr. Lucas about what people can do in the meantime while we collectively wait for important research to be completed and published. At the moment, the message is do not panic. There's a lot of association studies, but our association studies are often set out that you have a certain idea. You know, you measure one thing and then you have this health impact and you sort of like you only see it one way. Good research attacks a problem where you actually don't know where you're going. Like at the moment, we're totally in the gray, right? Nothing is black and white. I would suggest don't change anything. Wait until we actually have evidence that things are bad for you. Focus on the things you know that are already bad. Like and focus, eat sustainably, make sure you don't produce a lot of waste. Look after your environment, you know, grow your own vegetables, do all those things that you already know will have an impact for your own benefit, but also on the environment. And in regards to living without plastics or having, you know, changing your lifestyle to the extent that you want to have a health benefit, maybe wait, you know, just wait because people are doing research in this area and there may be some key things that we need to change which will give you a big health benefit. And there are other changes that we just have to say, okay, we're going to have to live with that. Think of a hospital environment, like the way we give antibiotics through lines and so on. Everything is plastic. Plastic, in a way, has enabled many people to live comfortably. It's really 
made food a lot safer. All of our food preparations are on plastic trays and no longer on wooden trays because, you know, the risk of having bacteria stick to the wood is a lot higher. So there are benefits and we have to be very careful not to panic when we actually only know half of the story. So do the things that you know that are already important and make sure that whatever you do, you support small businesses, eat organic, have a whole food diet and eat sustainably. I think these are the things that we already have very good evidence that they're helpful. And to some extent, they will also get you to that stage where you have a healthy lifestyle that probably is where you have less plastic exposure than somebody who can't cook or doesn't cook and uses a lot of unhealthy foods. When we talk about human health, that not only means our physical well-being, but also encapsulates mental health. We recently spoke to Associate Professor Dr. Amy Likens about how global issues like plastic pollution can have psychological consequences. My name is Amy Likens, and I'm an associate professor in clinical psychology here at the University of New England. And my research is mainly on human behavior change associated with climate change, as well as mental health and climate change. So looking at how climate and climate change affects us psychologically, as well as what we can do to try to reduce our impact on the environment. For probably the last sort of like 10 to 15 years, it's been getting a lot more attention. So with like climate change and environmental degradation and things like the physical health effects have been noted for quite some time, but only in the sort of last 10 to 15 have we been paying more attention to the like psychological mental health effects and um, finding wealth of bad information or <laughs> bad news there anyway um, of what's going on there as well. I'm a clinical psychologist. And if you look at just anxiety in general, that that's those are pretty much the circumstances that are going to create anxiety in people, right? Where you have a potentially fearful situation, uncertainty, right? And so what you do find in sort of the clinical literature just in general is when you have circumstances that are more uncertain, that are not predictable, humans like predictability, right? And you've got a lot of things coming at you from different places telling you about how bad it's going to be, or you've got anything from it's going to be fine to society is going to be completely wiped out, right? For people who particularly are a little bit higher on that anxiety spectrum, maybe have a higher or rather a lower um, intolerance for uncertainty, are going to probably find these situations a lot more stressful. That said, like anybody who's paying attention probably realizes that a lot of the predictions are, aren't great for anybody. This is probably going to be relatively stressful if it's something that you believe in, if you want to use that language. <laughs> if it's not something that you're denying that it is, yeah, kind of happening and what it's going to look like. So, and it's a, it's a global problem, right? So you live your life as one person, sort of think about what impact you can have. And you're Greta Thunberg, you can have a huge impact, but the average person isn't Greta, right? So you've got to kind of figure out like what you can do within your, your own circumstances, I guess. Since the early 2000s, lots of research has been done on ecological anxiety or eco-anxiety as it is commonly known. Dr. Likens explained what this term means and the effect that it can have on people. So eco-anxiety, as I said, is sort of something that's been getting a lot more attention in sort of last 10 to 15 years. And what it's really looking at is, I think it kind of started in really looking at the climate crisis, right? So what impacts climate change is having on the environment and what that might be having on people as well. It's, it's broader than that. So while a lot of people use climate change anxiety and eco-anxiety pretty interchangeably, from my perspective and my reading of the literature, eco-anxiety includes or can include climate change anxiety, but climate change anxiety is pretty specific. So like with eco-anxiety, you've also got anxiety and concern and worry about the plastic crisis, right? And various other things that aren't necessarily directly related to climate change, but of course that's part of it as well. 
I mean, there's no one singular definition and there's been a lot of sort of theorizing about what this means and how people experience it. And we do have a philosopher, Glenn Albrecht, who's done a fair amount of work um, from a philosophical perspective and thinking about impacts of climate change and environmental degradation on people's mental health and well-being. And he's come up with a term called solastalgia, where it's kind of the overall just watching it. um, So think about like nostalgia, right? So thinking back to something that you cared about from before. So nostalgia is kind of you're still in that situation, but you're watching something that you love basically degrade in front of you. So it's done a lot of work with wheat belt farmers and watching the salination of their lands where it's not any one particular impact, like say a bushfire or something, but still just that long-term drought when we were in drought a few years ago, sort of watching that. It's broad. And another point that should be made, I guess, is that eco-anxiety specifically is not a clinical disorder, right? And there's a lot of argument about that it should never be considered a clinical disorder, that it's a, a realistic response to pretty serious issues that we're having. And that's true. But what you can find is that when people have really severe eco-anxiety, it can actually tip into clinical disorders. So generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, those kinds of things. So to make that point that, yes, they are separate, but that doesn't mean they're completely disconnected. So with respect to symptoms, it may be higher levels of stress, problems sleeping, you see increased substance abuse, potentially rumination and really kind of obsessing over the issues and not really being able to kind of disentangle yourself from those, those thoughts. You can see more positive effects where you do get people engaging in more activism and those kinds of things. Media consumption can certainly contribute to those kinds of things as well, but also just exposure to like natural hazard events. So I think we did see, and some of the data that I collected a few years ago did show like pretty high levels of environmental concern and eco-anxiety immediately following Black Summer. That level of exposure that we all had to bushfires, even if we weren't directly threatened, it was still sort of all around us. And of course, it was on the news for six months or whatever, that that tended to have an effect as well. So it's kind of a mix. It can be something has directly affected you, or it can be you're watching something happening. So on the topic of plastics, for I've never seen <laughs> the plastic in the ocean in that camera, but the, what it's like the size of Texas or something, right? I've never seen that, but hearing about it <laughs> and seeing images, that can cause you some stress as well. So the actual empirical literature is really new in this area, but you'll probably have seen a lot of media articles again (laughs) about birth strikers, right? So the birth striker movement of people around the world who are saying, I'm not having kids until this is fixed. (laughs) I'm not bringing children into this world, not knowing what it's going to look like. And then, yeah, so that's starting to get some literature behind it. And a few people around the world are starting to kind of look at this more empirically, but it is And you can sort of understand why, right? So it's like, what am I setting my kid up for? Why would I do that, right? And I, you know, I just kind of reflecting on this, like thinking about, you know, conversations I've had with people, it's like, why would you even consider that? You can't not have kids because of climate change. And there have always been things going on in the world. And, you know, in the 50s, we had possible nuclear war and like, da, da, da. And it's like, yeah, but that's possible. (laughs) That could have happened. And yes, that would have been awful. But there was no guarantee that it was going to happen. Whereas this is, right? The only thing that we don't know is just how bad it's going to be, right? So maybe we'll all collectively come together and keep us under three or four degrees Celsius increase or not, but it's going up. And, you know, the we know what those effects are going to be and we're already seeing them. So yeah, it can, and certainly, you know, people who are more engaged with these kinds of issues and sort of think about those things. There are a lot of reasons to or not to have kids, but, you know, that's increasingly becoming one of them. It does tend to be disproportionately younger people, which makes sense. 
you can understand that people who are growing up starting to recognize what it is that we're dealing with, realizing that they haven't contributed nearly as much to the situation, but are going to have to live with the effects the longest. Sure, of course. And some rightful anger there about what they've been handed. But I I don't want to say too that, well, younger people, yes, are disproportionately affected. That doesn't mean that older people aren't too. I did a study with one of my students who, Darcy Keo, who was looking at, yeah, eco-anxiety and kind of coping and things. And yeah, found that it was kind of a U-shaped curve in his data sets. Where he recruited from might explain some of this. But anyway, what we found was sort of the highest levels in young people, but then like the second highest levels in what we call like boomer generation. And it kind of dipped for Gen X, kind of older millennials. And the way that we interpret that was that's the age group that is basically raising families, right? So they're in the middle of their careers working to build that as well as trying to raise children. And you do find those issues are just put aside in many cases because there's just so many more immediate things in your face. But but again, that's not to say that there aren't people that are concerned and there certainly are. If those data are anything to go by, that's kind of what we found here in Australia. But yeah, definitely the highest rates in younger people. Boomers get a bad rap in a lot of ways, but there are certainly people in that age group who are very active in these kinds of issues and have been, you know, their entire lives. And, you know, frankly, their age now, they've got more time to try to deal with this than a lot of other people who are still sort of working, family, all those kinds of things. So generally speaking, that's what it's there. But yeah. If we can accept that plastic pollution is a problem created by humans and the lifestyles that we live, it then stands to reason that the solution must also come from humans. But as we've just learned, reading, hearing about, or witnessing global and complex ecological issues can be difficult for people to process. So how then should these topics be communicated? And is there a way of delivering important messaging to inspire action rather than anxiety? Dr. Likens discussed. The Yale Climate Change Communication Group, they started doing research a while back about how to, particularly in the US when things are so dichotomized, I guess, and so polemic, trying to figure out how to communicate to people. So you've got people who are banging on about how horrible it's going to be. You've got other people who are saying, hey, look, all we need to do is this and everything's going to be fine. And what you find is that those messages resonate with different groups of people. They call it the six Americas. We're kind of on a scale from complete denialism to very distressed and very concerned. And you've got people along the gamut of how they feel about this issue, how engaged they are with it. And targeting messages for those groups is going to be a lot more effective than just sort of blanket saying one thing or the other, right? So, and that's a, that's a good justification to say, okay, I'm going to make this message to target this group of people or this message to target this group of people. And they've done some of similar things here in Australia as well. So one of my colleagues who used to work here, Don Hine, who's now in New Zealand, yeah, did a similar type of study here and found that there were sort of five Australias. So relatively similar, but I think there was less denialism here, if I recall that study. So it's it's really looking at what, what your message is and who you're targeting with it that's going to be most effective to getting people involved. So for some people, it is going to be a lot of activism, right? Other people... It might be something a bit quieter, particularly with activism. One thing I'd want to say is it's great to be really active, but also make sure that you're not burning out, (laughs) Um, that you're not totally consumed by this issue to where you're not living your life, you're not taking care of yourself, that your mental health is going to suffer from that. So I think like with everything, it's really about balance and figuring out sort of where you put your energies and how that sort of works. So there's a woman named Maria Jala probably mispronouncing her name. She's in Sweden and she's done a lot of work with coping 
and with climate change and young people and looked at various ways of coping and what's most effective for supporting mental health. And one of the things that she found with younger people is looking at meaning focused coping. So basically, what are your values and are you acting within them? Versus other types of coping, so like emotion-focused coping, which is, I feel really distressed by this, so I'm going to try not to feel distressed. Not necessarily the most effective way to kind of deal with issues, and problem-focused coping can be effective to a point. But back to the concept of this is a really huge, overwhelming problem that, you know, neither you nor I or any individual person can, you know, fix, that understanding what your parameters are of influence and not feeling despair about not being able to wave a magic wand and sort of fix everything. So no one answer for every person, but those are some of the things that we want to think about with trying to get people involved and to care. And people may start caring more the more they are directly affected. If your area wasn't burning down three years ago, it might be flooded today. So it's hard to avoid in Australia in particular, which is likely to be one of the most affected countries. People are a lot more willing to get concerned and like donate for one person's story than they are like millions of people are suffering. So You think about those pictures of the turtles, right, with that they've grown up with plastic around them, that that probably has more of an impact than saying millions of turtles are affected by this. So you've got to work with human psychology if you want to get people engaged with those kinds of issues. And that can be sort of one of the ways. Ultimately, it's a people problem, right? We we caused this. Our lifestyles have contributed to this and they continue to contribute to it every day. So if if we don't understand how to talk to people and get people engaged with this, then you're probably not going to get anywhere. There's definitely an argument for being informed, but not being consumed. Yeah, doom scrolling is certainly an issue. And then you've got to deal with all the algorithms of media and social media and sort of what it's directing you to without your intentional awareness. Yeah, kind of continuous scrolling. You can just go down a rabbit hole. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but it it can take you into places where you may not have gone initially. And then it can also take you to places where maybe the sources aren't great, (laughs) right? So I guess another thing like in thinking about sort of consumption of media is making sure that you're getting good information and not just some random person who has a blog or uh, on YouTube who acts like they know things and says things really confidently. That doesn't mean that they're any more informed than anybody else. So yeah, I guess kind of looking at it from that perspective as well, being thoughtful and mindful about how much you're engaging with that media and also thinking about like what quality of media you're engaging with. One method of alleviating feelings of anxiety or hopelessness is to spend time with like-minded people and develop community spaces that make room for education, discussion and activism. Dr. Likens explained. If you're the kind of person that gets energy from being around other people, then absolutely. (laughs) You'll know where you're comfortable at and what helps you in terms of that. But yeah, having that social support and it's good, again, (laughs) with some caution of this to good to be surrounded by people who are concerned about the same types of things that you are to an extent. (laughs) So not letting it go so far where it's like, why bother getting out of bed, right? And I think that's the thing that as a clinical psychologist anyway, that I would really kind of caution is, yes, I think these issues are really important and that it's important that we engage with them, but also being mindful about what effect that can have on us and figuring out like where you get your energy from and where you get your support from. And if you need to take a break, you take a break, right? So we can't worry about things. 24-7. That's not going to help you be active in anything and making any difference, but it's also not a way to go through life. One of the things that I, a lot of conversations I've had with other people sort of working in this field is the issue of individual versus collective responsibility. And so you've got psychologists are really good at working one-on-one and I've done a fair amount of research with my students and other colleagues about behavior change. So 
what can we do individually to try to make better decisions when we're faced with environmental hazards and make better decisions about the types of things that we do for that contribute to our carbon footprint. And then you've got other people as well, which I agree with, which is unique collective action, right? So whether or not I never fly again is not going to fix the climate problem, right? It's it's about looking at what governments are doing and sort of policies and corporations and those kinds of things. The whole concept of carbon footprint that that was developed by BP. That's a British petroleum thing that they were like, oh, here's how you can do this yourself. And so we're not responsible. You're responsible, right? There's a history of that, of we don't want to change what we're doing. But no, of course, nobody wants to change what they're doing if they like it. Yeah, you and your individual life can do everything you can to avoid plastic. But how much more of an impact is it going to have if the state governments say, no, we're not doing this anymore? (laughs) And there you go. Not leaving it entirely to the individual to try to do that. If you set up the environment to help different decisions being made or just withdrawing the plastic entirely, it's going to have a lot more of an impact than each one of us trying to take that responsibility on ourselves. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us again for episode four, our final episode, where we'll be learning about the power of individuals and communities in confronting plastic pollution. You don't want to get sucked into, I'm a horrible person because I have this carbon footprint because I live in this country, which is wealthy, and I have a car. Occasionally, I like to fly places. But on the other hand, I don't think that that should absolve people of individual responsibility. So I just think, again, it's kind of a balance of where you feel like you're comfortable and in contributing to those kinds of conversations and those activities. 